0: Well, there they are again, those funny, funny fellows, Stan the skinny one and Ollie the fat one. Riding along through the California landscape and their ever faithful model T Ford, they somehow managed in their years of making movies to create a
1: special world of their own, a wonderful, wacky world where the most logical kind of behavior always resulted in the wildest kind of confusion.
0: Here, for example, in one of their first pictures together, They play a couple of men from the sheriff's office, legal biggles who have come to repossess an unpaid-for radio from their old arch-enemy, Edgar Kennedy. Now, you might think that was the simplest thing in the world to do. The law on their side, just serve the man a paper
1: and pick up the radio. No, it's only simple in our world. Welcome back to the Laurel and Hardy podcast. I'm Patrick Vasey, the author of Laurel and Hardy's Silence and the editor of the all-new Laurel and Hardy magazine, and this is episode 33. Today we continue our chronological look at the film career of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, and our attention turns to February 1929 and the next film in the boys' canon, Bacon Grabbers. Our guest today is a man that you will all, I'm sure, be very familiar with by now. It's Laurel and Hardy expert, film historian and author, friend of the podcast. It's Randy Skretvet. But before we begin, uh, I have some more updates and things to mention. Um, firstly, we've received two more five star ratings in reviews in the last month. The first one of those reads Five Star Podcast. What a lovely podcast this is! When it drops into my podcast library to listen to, there is an instant wave of joy, knowing that when I press play, I get taken to a world nearly 100 years ago, and it is a world of nothing but joy. Great guests who have given the listeners so many extra nuggets of information that we didn't know before, interspersed with really well-edited clips or songs from their movies. Patrick, sir, you are doing a fine job here. You make what is probably a difficult and time-consuming exercise look easy. I've not noticed any sound level issues. That obviously refers to a previous um, review from last month, um, so thank you for that. It's a great relief to me. Um, it's a great listen either when commuting to and from work or generally pottering around the house. I thought at the start that a podcast a month would take too long to get to some of my favourite films that they have made, but to have already got to Double Whoopee. the speed is perfect. When I finish a podcast, which I'm always completely up to date with, then it makes me stick on a couple of films to watch, starting always with the one you've just reviewed. Keep up the good work. You're making a lot of people very happy and pass on our thanks to your guests too, who are all excellent. And that was from Spencer. Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to write that uh, review. I really, really appreciate it. It made me feel so good to read that. Um, And the, uh, the uh, the second review reads... Well, here's another nice podcast you've gotten me into. How have I only just discovered this amazing podcast just a few months ago? Having been a Laurel and Hardy fan since I was a kid in the early 80s, this is just what the doctor ordered. The same doctor who said I might have hydrophosphates. (laughs) Patrick's enthusiasm for his subject matter shines through every delightful minute of these deep dives into each of the boys' films. His guests are the creme de la creme of Laurel and Hardy expertise, and the pace is always relaxed, allowing the experts to chat on and off topic in as much depth as they like, exploring every nook and cranny of each film, and thus ensuring their insights are preserved for posterity. His exploration of the silence has reawakened an interest in these films for me, which I have to admit I've neglected in the past. Patrick and his guests have accompanied me on many a long journey or walk this year, making the hours simply fly by. And I still have lots of episodes to catch up on and look forward to. Keep up the amazing work. I'll be with you until at all K. And that was from uh, ADCB100. Uh, So thank you, thank you, thank you for that uh, review. I do love to hear that you actually, you've gone back to listen, uh, sorry, to to watch the films, Um, especially the silence, uh, if you've sort of neglected them in the past. That is really uh, important to me, to try and get the silence uh, in the spotlight once more. So great stuff. Thank you for those. Um, Also, a lovely email we've had sent through from Joe, Uh, And Joe said, "'Just wanted to thank you for the work you are doing "'in keeping alive memories of the boys. "'I've been a fan for as long as I can or or care to remember. Uh, "'I'm working my way through your podcast, "'watching each film in turn. "'Unfortunately, I've only reached number 19, "'so I have a way to go. "'Fortunately, the podcasts are both informative and entertaining. "'Keep up the good work, Joe.'" So thank you very much, Joe. Really, really appreciate you getting in touch. And again, I'm so pleased that you're going off and, and watching the films after listening to the podcast. Uh, thank you to everybody for sending in messages. Those are just, that's just one email of many that I get through. Uh, and also your comments on social media is, uh, is very well received. Um, thank you to everyone. Even if I don't read them here, I do always read them. Uh, and like Stan, I will reply to you where I can. Uh, Russ and I have also had a lot of feedback following the release of Issue 3 of our all-new Laurel and Hardy magazine. Uh, Now, they do get sent out in batches, so don't panic if you haven't received yours just yet. Uh, I'm sure it will be with you soon. Uh, In fact, just the other day, we received an email from Geoffrey Holland, who you may remember was my special guest on episode 28. Uh, And Geoffrey said, Hi, boys. Thank you so much for the new magazine. It is spectacular. A genuine joy to sit and read straight from cover to cover. You don't believe me? I certainly do. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Uh, yours faithfully, Geoffrey Holland. That's lovely. Thank you, Jeff, for that. That's superb. Um, And that was just one of the many messages of appreciation we've had for the the magazine. Um, If you'd like to subscribe to the magazine and get our new issue, which focuses on Helpmates, uh, featuring an exclusive article by today's guest, Randy Skretvet, uh, then just visit www.laurelandhardyfilms.com and you can sign up today. Um, I also have two new patrons of the podcast to welcome this month, so welcome and thanks go to Steve McCarty and Andrew Llewellyn, both of whom signed up to the Plum Tree tier and so now they have access to all of the bonus podcasts uh, and also a gift subscription to the magazine, as well as several other benefits. Um, I've said before, my patrons are my sponsors, so your support means everything to me, so a thousand thanks. Um, If you aren't a patron and you'd like to become one and access exclusive podcasts and much, much more, uh, you could also become a patron for just a small few dollars or pounds or euros a month. Just visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Laurel and Hardy podcast, or even easier, just click the link in the episode notes. Uh, And finally, I'd like to say thank you and acknowledge the different countries around the world in which the podcast makes the top 10 in the podcast charts. Uh, And I've noticed over this past month, especially that the Laurel and Hardy podcast reached the number one spot in the film history chart in Lithuania. Um, in fact, over the past few weeks, uh, two different episodes of the podcast have held two different positions in Lithuania's top 10 at the same time. So I've been really thrilled with that. Uh, so I do want to say acho to all my Lithuanian listeners. So that's all the updates for today. So let's crank that Model T because we've got a radio to retrieve. Today's film and focus is Bacon Grabbers. It was a two-reeler filmed February 18th to February 27th, 1929, and it was released on October 19th, 1929. It was produced by Hal Roach, directed by Lewis R. Foster, and photographed by George Stevens. Following the resignation of Leo McCary in December 1928, the Hal Roach studios entered the uncharted waters of the new talkie era without a creative supervisor in charge. McCary had taken on the role of supervising director, overseeing all the studio's output late in 1927, filling the position previously held by F. Richard Jones, the latter having occupied the post since the early 1920s. Both gentlemen were incredibly talented and respected within the industry, and the departure left a sizeable hole gaping at the organisation's upper echelon. Filling that void effectively was not going to be easy, but the search for McCary's replacement began immediately. In the meantime, however, as the adage goes, time waits for no man, nor indeed for no studio, and The Lot of Fun was now in the position of having to produce some of its most important and technically challenging comedy shorts since the studio began without a supervising director. As a temporary interim measure, Hal Roach and Warren Doane stepped in to supervise all comedy productions on the lot until McCary's replacement could be secured. For the most part, the main series were in good hands, Having worked with and directed Roach's Little Rascals since their inception in 1921, Robert McGowan took responsibility for driving and developing the Gang series. Charlie Chase, who alongside Leo McCary had successfully transformed his self-titled series of comedies from one to two reelers, would now take hold of both reins into the new world of the talkies. Chase was a competent and experienced pair of hands, having held the position of supervising director at the studio in 1920, overseeing all productions except for the Harold Lloyd series. And finally, the Laurel and Hardy team, which owed its very existence for the most part to Leo McCary, was now solely under the creative stewardship of Stan Laurel. Having been schooled and guided by McCarey and Jones respectively in comedy creation and directing, Stan was now perfectly equipped to drive the series confidently. The first picture the boys tackled in the post-McCarrie era was Bacon Grabbers, and it set Stan and Ollie as attachment officers from the local sheriff's office. The boys are tasked with serving a writ to reclaim a radio from a tough guy named Collis P. Kennedy. As alluded to by the name, the part of the bruiser who won't pay for his radio and won't hand it back either is played by Edgar Kennedy. There are some nice bits of business in the opening scene in the sheriff's office, with some classic mix-up gags involving hats, the writ, and a couple of internal doors. This sequence would be unashamedly recreated for their scene with Charles Middleton's character in the 1931 talkie Bo Hunks. Still, there's just enough individuality to each version to keep them both enjoyable in their own right. Here, the sheriff, with the unenviable task of being in charge of Stan and Ollie, is played by Eddie Baker in one of his numerous appearances with Laurel and Hardy. With their task finally assigned, writ in hand, their hats on their own heads, and having made it out of the correct door of the Sheriff's Office, the dynamic duo crank their waiting model T into life, only to drive straight into the back of Charlie Hall's stationary truck. The impact damages the boy's radiator, and water shoots over Ollie's behind. To fix the leak, Hardy stuffs his handkerchief into the radiator, and the water stops. Initially, this scene was shot with Charlie Hall recommending the boys pour cream of wheat into the radiator, which would have messy consequences further down the road. And although this gag wasn't included in the film's final version, existing studio stills prove that it was likely shot but then discarded. The original script for Baking Grabbers includes this same gag but appearing as a finale. And again, it wasn't used. It would, however, find a home in a Laurel and Hardy picture later that same year and used to good effect in the Hoosgow. The originator of this particular gag appears to have been Charlie Hall himself. According to Hall's later reminiscences, quote, In 1924, Fred Carnot Jr. took a comedy act on tour and I was a member of the outfit. We went off to San Francisco and our conveyance was one of those very old types of Ford. Talk about rattle. The engine got very hot at one stage and this caused the radiator to leak. Steam came hissing out of the radiator cap like smoke from an express train until finally we had to pull up and call at a petrol station. We asked them to fill up with oil and water and while they were doing it we noticed the leaking radiator. It was just like a watering can. We could not get it fixed. Fred suddenly hit on a brainwave. He went into the grocery store and got three packets of breakfast food. This he put in the radiator. After a couple of minutes, the leak stopped, and off we went. After going several miles, we saw what we thought was snow passing by the windows. It was so thick, it covered our windscreen, and we had to stop and wipe it. We then found that the snow was Fred's breakfast food, and it was pouring out of the radiator. We lifted the bonnet and saw a huge pudding. The engine was covered, and so were we, for we had forgotten to turn off the engine. Stan later used this in one of his comedies. And that was from the London Weekly News, from September 3rd, 1938. Having repaired their radiator with a handkerchief, Stan and Ollie arrive at Kennedy's house. This was Edgar's first film back with the boys since his role as an angry motorist in Two Tars, and this is easily one of his most significant roles for Stan and Babe. The location used for Kennedy's house, still standing today, was at 10341 Bannockburn, in the Cheviard Hills area of Los Angeles. At the time of filming, the property was the newly built residence of Elmer R. Regis, the chief recording engineer for Victor Recording Company, and the man assigned to oversee all sound recording at the Halroach Studios. Regis' professionalism and unique skill set were quickly recognised, and he soon established himself as a highly valued and vital component of the studio's production team. The film's main plot has the boys attempting first to place the writ into the evasive Kennedy's hand, and then once achieved, their next challenge is to seize possession of the radio from inside the house. There are some hilarious cat-and-mouse-style sequences here, and the many attempts to serve Kennedy with the writ are excellent, usually ending up with the boys foiling themselves. On one occasion, they think they've succeeded, but they've only managed to press Stan's half-eaten sandwich into Kennedy's hand rather than the paper. In another sequence, Ollie is hilariously dragged down the path and across the road by a frightened, somewhat oversized dog, narrowly avoiding being run over by a passing car. The mechanics of this gag are not dissimilar to a more famous one performed a couple of years later in The Music Box, during which Mr Hardy is dragged down a particular set of steps whilst clinging on to a crated piano. The dutiful attachment officers eventually manage to serve Kennedy with the writ, and their sense of relief is almost tangible. Accepting defeat over this first act, grumpy Kennedy throws down the next gauntlet. Now try and get the radio. And the door is slammed shut. And so we start all over again, and with more great gags, as the boys try to climb a ladder to enter the house through an open first-floor window. There's a terrific scene where Ollie carries a ladder with Stan teetering on the top rungs. Hardy incredibly takes the weight of the laurel-topped ladder by resting the feet in the waistband of his trousers. Meanwhile, a little dog plays tug-of-war with Ollie's braces or suspenders, depending on which side of the Atlantic you wear them. And if that's not enough, whilst all this is happening, Kennedy pokes his head out of the window and aims a shotgun in Stan's face. (laughs) Stan's terrified reaction is hilarious. And then, as with all sash windows in Laurel and Hardy movies, Kennedy's window slides shut and cracks down onto the back of his balding head, causing him to pull the trigger accidentally. Thankfully, he misses Stan, but instead hits a fire hydrant, which instantly explodes and soaks a conveniently placed street cop played by Harry Bernard. It's a great sequence of gags, ending with the appearance of Bernard, another regular supporting player in the boys' pictures, appearing in no less than 26 films with Laurel and Hardy over the years. The soggy cop, now drawn into the action, gets involved and assists by immediately retrieving the radio. The film culminates with the boys gloating smugly until a timely steamroller appears. It flattens the much-contested radio left in the middle of the road, causing much amusement for Kennedy. His joy is short-lived though, as suddenly his wife appears on the lawn to celebrate the good news that she's just paid off the money and they now own the radio. So it's the boys' turn to laugh, but their joy is quickly wiped away when the steamroller promptly returns and rolls right over the boys' Model T Ford, crushing it completely. Now, it's worth noting here that Jean Harlow plays Mrs. Kennedy in the last of her three fleeting appearances with Stan and Babe, the other two being Liberty and Double Whoopie. In addition to these, her photo can also be seen in two later Laurel and Hardy pictures, firstly on the mantelpiece in Bratz, and then as the accompanying photo to the heartbreaking letter from Jeannie Weenie that provides the impetus for Stan and Ollie to join the Foreign Legion in Bo Hunks. Although *Bacon Grabbers was filmed in February 1929, it wasn't released until October. The demands of exhibitors and their paying audiences were now for the fashionable talkies, and silent pictures quickly became museum pieces. The Roach Studios keenly responded by producing as many talkies as they could, as quickly as possible, and interspersing their releases with the final few silent pictures. By the time Bacon Grabbers was finally released to theatres, five all-talking Laurel and Hardy comedies had already been consumed by the movie-going masses, namely Unaccustomed As We Are, Birthmarks, Men of War, Perfect Day and They Go Boom, and one has to wonder how the boys' final two silent films, Bacon Grabbers and Angora Love, were received by those same audiences. The dearth of exhibitor and trade reviews for these last two silent Laurel and Hardy comedies is perhaps a sign of the lack of demand for silent shorts by the autumn of 1929. Both Bacon Grabbers and Angola Love were released with synchronised music and sound effects tracks, in line with several of their earlier silence. This time the music was recorded using only a pipe organ instead of a full orchestra score. Were contemporary audiences disappointed to be presented with the old silent versions of Stan and Ollie again, after enjoying not only the sight, but also the wonderful sounds of the boys' voices, This review arguably suggests so. Quote Bacon Grabbers. This is one of Laurel and Hardy's synchronised comedies, and while good, it has organ accompaniment, which is not so good after running them in talking pictures. And that was from the Bedford Theatre in Bedford in Exhibitors Herald World, 31st of May 1930. Public taste and the movie industry itself were changing fast moviegoers now not only wanted to see their favourite stars, but hear them as well. Nervous actors and their employers could only hope that their fans would accept their voices. This was an extremely anxious time as many careers were made and broken by this massive development. Production of all talking comedies was about to begin at the Hal Roach Studios, but there was still one more Laurel and Hardy silence short to be made. <laughs> Helping me to retrieve an unpaid-for radio today and discuss the classic Laurel and Hardy short at the same time is returning guest, Laurel and Hardy expert, film historian and author, it's Randy Scretfed. So welcome back to the Laurel and Hardy podcast, Randy. Yes, thank you, Patrick. It's wonderful to be here again. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's always exciting to have you on, Randy. Always looking forward to uh, the knowledge that you impart. I shall uh, I shall listen intently. Um, so uh, today we are talking about Bacon Grabbers, of course. 1929's Bacon Grabbers. And it, I've got to say, it's one of my favorite silent shorts. I love Bacon Grabbers. Quite often overlooked, I think.
0: Yes, I, I would agree on both counts. Uh, I like it a lot because it does not uh, go back to the uh, reciprocal destruction uh, mass uh, melee uh, type of thing at the end it could have but uh, you know i think that that device was getting to be pretty well worn by the time of bacon grabbers which is their next to last silent short um and uh, it, it's it's rather refreshing to see a laurel and hardy silent that doesn't <laughs> have a mass of people ripping their trousers or throwing pies or you know good as those sequences are um it, it became a little bit too much of a of a crutch to rely on at the end of the picture you know i mean they throw they throw mud at each other and should married men go home and rocks in the finishing touch and hats and hats off it's like how many times can you do that
1: let's <laughs> so, i mean I, I was i'm always quite disappointed when when watching double whoopee because that that is quite a different laurel and hardy film i always think mm-hmm. up until the end and then we get the same old kind of pastiche of uh, you know uh, ripping things off and tearing, you know, and setting the, the, eye, the eye poking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's just a little bit of a a cheap way out. I think it's a disappointing end to that film. But well, uh,
0: they do they do, do have it. the nice gag at the elevator with the end, though.
1: Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, and that's and true. again
0: and again that fo- that that like the cake for from soup to nuts follows the comedy rule of three. That's right. You know? yes. three three that's is right. funny. Don't do any more. You know, you do you do one of you do that gag near the beginning of your film, somewhere in the
1: middle, and then you use it as your topper at the at the final so. part of the film. <laughs> so yeah, so we, we we're talking about bacon grabbers. Um, Leo McCarey has left at this point; he's finally gone, exited stage left. We have no supervising director at the studio, um, and I just find this really it's, it's it's a really interesting period now because we've got a very important and technically challenging uh situation we're, mm. we're moving into the talkies um with no supervising director in charge i mean it must well, have been a, you
0: know I, you know i think i think you could make the case that hal roach was essentially the supervising director and uh, because he as he said he always saw the dailies and he he didn't believe in criticizing people on the set but he would look at the day the footage from the day before and if there was something he didn't like they do it again um uh but you know you also had people who were pretty much in charge of the individual units like you had bob mcgowan for our gang and you had you had had leo mccary for charlie chase i guess charlie and uh uh jimmy Parrott were taking care of uh charlie chase um bacon grabbers is uh, right smack in the middle of the uh the six film uh Tenure of uh, Lewis Foster as director. He's interesting because he did the last three silence and the first three talkies. So he is he's really the director who shepherded them into that new technology. And uh, uh, I, think, I think they probably you know, regretted the, the transfer to sound early on because uh, bacon grabbers, a lot of it's shot outdoors, uh, and it would have been very difficult to film this in sound. You'd have to bring in a a generator, a power generator. Uh, You'd have to have the camera all hooked up to sound equipment. Uh, You'd have to have the boom mic there and make sure that you don't get that into the shot. Uh, They still would bring in, I don't know if they did in the silent days, but they certainly did in the talky days. Um, Even if they're shooting outdoors, they brought in a lot of lights uh, uh, um, because of shadows. So anyway, it would have been much more cumbersome. And uh, Bacon Grabbers is, you know, one of the last silence where you have that wonderful outdoor uh, ambience, you know, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's fun to see how wide open the surrounding area is. I mean, it's all houses now, very expensive houses now. <laughs> and in fact, the Bacon Grabbers house itself was, was newly built. Um, I can tell you about the house uh if you're interested right now yes
1: yes yes go for
0: it it it, it still stands and uh let's see if i can find it here it's on bannockburn it's right near the big business house um let's see if we can find it here it is it's at 10341 bannockburn drive and uh it's if you go to the big business house which is at uh dunleer drive well uh the, the the bacon grabber's house is two tenths of a mile southwest from the big business house, so one o three four one Bannockburn, and it you don't see much of the house now because there's a lot of trees around it, and I think there's a fence around it there. But you can you can see the top of the roof, and uh, the house had been completed in 1928, and in October of 1928, uh, a new employee of the Hal Roach Studios, Elmer Regas, uh, moved in because he was busy. Uh, designing and creating the sound recording equipment for the Hal Roach Studios. Uh, Roach knew that sound was the wave of the future and he needed to get sound recording equipment installed in his studio. And so uh, Elmer Regus came out from the Victor Talking Machine Company in Camden, New Jersey, and uh, needed a place to stay. So I think he was just renting uh, the house at this point. Um, But he was there for quite some time because um, uh, his grandson, Craig... Uh, whom I've gotten to know through Facebook, uh, sent me scans of some uh, uh, family photos in front of the house. And there's one of his, his dad, little Elmer Jr., uh, standing in front of the doorway. And you get to see the full... You don't really get to see much of the entire house in the film. Mainly you see the doorways. But uh, uh, these are wonderful shots. I think I've got them in Magic Behind the Movies. Um, so, it, you know, when, when the Roach Studio needed to use a house it was always smarter as with big business and with perfect day to use a house that belonged to somebody at the studio, because they would understand that whatever damage was incurred to the house would be, uh, repaired because, and repaired quickly because the studio had uh, an army of carpenters and plasterers and painters, and they could fix this up very quickly. So, uh, uh, Anyway, Real Moragus, uh, his, his, I don't think his family had moved out yet from New Jersey. I think he was just there all by himself. And so uh, obviously he wanted to have a good working relationship with his uh, new employers. Actually, I think he was still being paid by the Victor Company. But anyway, he was going to be working at the Roach lot. Uh, so, yeah, he uh, not only allowed them to uh, film outside the house, but they had to clearly go inside for that shot of Kennedy shooting through the window uh, looking outside so the camera had to go inside the house at one point so happily Mrs. Regus wasn't there to say what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that probably would have been her reaction
1: So, do you know when, when Elmo actually joined the Roach staff because as you say I'm pretty sure he was he was still a Victor employee at this point
0: yeah they brought out six the, there was a crew of nine I remember this from Harvey Wasdon saying this Harvey Wasdon said the sound crew, when they first started, was nine people. Three of them were local from L.A., and, and six of them were brought out from Camden. And, and uh, God bless them, my good friend John Tefteller, who is uh, a, a renowned uh, a collector and a historian of old recordings, but on the side, has also amassed a fantastic collection of Laurel and Hardy stills he brought to me a, uh, it was in the envelope, it was a still sent by one of the sound engineers to his mother. Sig, Sig Baden was the guy's name, B-A-D-E-N, Sig S-I-G was his first name. And bless him, he he, he had a, a, a photograph of the whole crew uh, from Camden with Warren Doan, the Roach executive whom you mentioned, and Stan and Babe. And then he had a little flap of paper on which he had uh, written the names of each of the guys in the photograph oh,
1: fantastic. so
0: thank you <laughs> <laughs> you know i might have been able to find the names in the payrolls but wouldn't have known who was who and and because because he did that and because john tefteller found it and loaned it to me i was able to say ah well that's that's uh, uh james green there and you know and that's william harrison so Uh, I don't recall offhand precisely the date when they arrived, but I'm sure it's in a section of magic behind the movies called a sound future. So, so uh, uh, as, as close as I can come to it, it will be in there.
1: Yeah. Is that image that uh, John showed you? Was that in in your book as well? I'm sure it is. It
0: was, it was too good as still not to use. (laughs) Oh Let's see.
1: They they might be on Is it where they're leaning up against the back of the truck.
0: Uh, yes, let's see here. Yes, it's on page 180. And we have in order Sig C. Bodden, Jimmy Green, Warren Doan, El Stan, Jack Whittaker, Babe, Aldebert Henry Dip Niece, <laughs> and John G. Harrison. So there they are in all their glory. And uh, then there's also a shot of the sound truck uh, in front of the administration building and everybody came out to look at it, including Edgar Kennedy, whom you can see, uh, and Bob McGowan also. So, anyway, nice nice to know, nice to have uh, names and faces uh, uh, together so that we know who's who. But, but anyway, Elmer Regis, uh gave permission to use his, uh, his rental house. Uh, I don't know who owned the house at the time. Maybe they wouldn't have known or had approved, but uh, we weren't going to tell them about it. Um, but the house is certainly still there. I'm sorry?
1: I say, certainly if they'd seen Big Business, they wouldn't have approved.
0: Well, I can, I can tell you something else about uh, uh, Big Business, too. Um, recently, I talked to uh, the niece of uh, William Terhune. Uh, Sunny Turner is her name. And she said the story that she always heard, and this kind of reconciles the two accounts of the, the wrong house, She said that Roach rented the house from William Terhune and said, come back in 10 days. It was Christmas week anyway. Uh, Come back in 10 days. We'll have everything all put back together. You'll never know anything ever happened. Okay, fine. So Terhune goes off on vacation, but he came back early and they were still filming. And he he was not happy with the... Uh, amount of destruction that had been <laughs> level at his house so that's that's where the element of coming back and saying what are you doing to my house that's where that enters right. in but, interesting. but it was not the wrong house it was always the right house it was just that the person who owned the right house was a little bit dismayed at the uh, level of destruction he didn't know that they were going to be that thorough about it uh, so and there, and there is a still, I've seen a still of, I'm sure it's T- Terhune standing in the midst of the house and shrugging as if to say, what happened? I know I've seen that still. So so anyway, that made sense to me that, that uh, uh, it was Terhune's house all along. It was never the wrong house, but there was an element of, hey, what are you doing to my house? And, you know, Mr. Roach being a good storyteller could have embellished that a bit yes so yeah just a bit.
1: <laughs> that's great no it's really yeah. good that does, yeah. that makes a lot of sense actually I yeah think that, that makes a lot yeah a lot more sense than previously right uh, that's great um Edgar kennedy as you mentioned uh yes. because obviously he was he was excellent in baking crabbers probably his biggest role i would think but the, uh, uh,
0: well of course he's he's very prominent in in leave them laughing uh and uh he had been a, a director for them um let me see yeah this is one of their most sustained encounters with him the last one had been in two tars where he's one of the motorists and between that he'd been in some other road shorts he's in a charlie chase short called off to buffalo and a charlie rogers starring short which would be interesting to see called when money comes and then uh, another short an all-star short called thundering Toupays. and of course (laughs) <laughs> edgar kennedy would be someone who would be uh, uh who could use one of those and he's also he also stars in a short called why is a plumber you know there's so many uh, odd road shorts and particularly mgms from the late silent period that um i don't don't seem to survive you know they're not everything exists and so if prints of those are around somewhere, it would sure be nice to see. I mean, that might be another project for Serge Bromberg and Company to do after they finish Laurel and Hardy. It would be just other Hal Roach shorts uh, that are just you know not uh, not available. Um, I, I, I I like his name uh, in the film uh, now. There's it, it's Collis P Kennedy. Now what's interesting is um, I think it's a, a hybrid of two of names of two. Uh, different people there was a colin b colin c-o-l-i-n colin b kennedy who made deluxe radios he was a well-known radio manufacturer and i have an ad my friend ed watts sent me uh, a newspaper ad for one of his radios and it says uh, uh, uh and this is similar to the radio that you see in the film it's a radio console model, beautiful two-tone walnut encasement, embodying every detail of design and equipment that has made a name for Kennedy, only $225. Now, that's in 1929 money, so that's a significant expenditure. Then there's also there was also a railroad tycoon by the name of Collis P. Huntington. So you have, you have Colin B. Kennedy and Collis P. Huntington. So I I think they combined the two. And The other thing is Collis is funny, and I'm not even sure if if Beanie Walker or whoever came up with the name was aware of this, but it's an old English name, and it means dark-haired coal miner. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that that is not what you would use to describe Edgar Kennedy, who went bald quite early on, but uh, maybe that was supposed to be an ironic joke as well. So the, his character name is an interesting uh, amalgamation of three different uh, possibilities there. Uh, Colin B. Kennedy and uh, Collis P. Huntington and uh, dark-haired coal, coal miner. So, but uh, yes, he's... And, and, and it, it's also interesting because this film points up the, uh, the popularity of radio. Um, uh, commercial radio broadcasting had begun in 1920 in America... Uh, they always say that the first known commercial broadcast or on a what became a commercial station was KDKA out of Pittsburgh, and they were broadcasting election returns. Uh, for let's see 1920, well, it would have been Harding. Uh, Harding won, Warren G. Harding was the winning president, Harding and Coolidge uh and so within you know this is this is going now nine years after that and by this time radio has really become uh something that was actually damaging uh, attendance at movies people were staying home to listen to radio much as they would 20 years later when television came in i thought you were going to meet me i was but i've
1: got to put the aerial up Mrs. hardy wants to get japan gee i'd like to hear japan too do you mind if i help you i don't mind that is if you'll help me
0: uh and you already had amos and andy on radio and you all you know you did have some of the show you had rudy valley and the fleischman hour and some of the shows which carried into the 30s were already broadcasting in 1929 so uh, uh, the, the the formats of programming, uh, soap operas and situation comedies and variety shows were already uh, becoming uh, you know together in, in 1929. So radio was becoming quite an quite an industry, and in fact, uh, uh, radio uh, formed a movie studio, the uh, uh, what we know as RKO Radio Pictures. Um, was really bankrolled primarily by David Sarnoff of the Radio Corporation of America. Uh, he formed a coalition with Joseph P. Kennedy, later the, the father of John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy who had owned the film booking office studio and they they bought up a, an old vaudeville circuit uh, called the Keith Orpheum circuit. So it was radio Keith Orpheum became RKO so, radio money basically created a whole new uh, movie studio because Sarnoff wanted to implement his audio equipment in movie theaters. And that's, that's the reason why he got into the movie business, because he said, there's all these films that have been showing, the theaters have been showing silent films, and they're all going to need amplifiers and uh, audio equipment and speakers. And uh, I can provide all of those. So I'm going to not only do that, but I'm going to start a whole new studio. So so radio was making its inroads into motion pictures at the time. There's there's also there's a wonderful still for the finishing touch, where Babe had brought along on location his portable radio. And <laughs> a portable radio yes. at that time was, I suppose, about three feet wide <laughs> and had had tubes in it. So that's that's a portable radio at that time. Listen! I think you better let that radio go.
1: I should say not.
0: I'll get that thing working if it's the last thing I do. Come on. And he also took that when the when the Roach gang went up to uh, Vancouver in 1928 so they could all get some legal booze. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, I have pictures of them uh, camping around outside having a meal and Babe's Radio is there in those photographs. In fact, I, I actually know I know what the model is. I can't remember it offhand, but somewhere in the book, I think probably, uh, probably the caption for that still in the finishing touch chapter, I have the, the actual name of that particular model.
1: Yes, I'm sure you do. So <laughs> oh, so,
0: so radio is a key part of Bacon Grabbers. And uh, of course, uh, Laurel and Hardy are uh, repo men, as we would call them today.
1: The bailiffs we have in the UK.
0: Okay. Well, it's interesting here. They're, they're on the side of the law again, as they are occasionally, you know, they, 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 they make films where they're on either side of the law. <laughs> and, uh, but they're, but they're not, well, they're not detectives this time. Um, uh, you know, they're detectives and do detectives think, and uh, uh, they're policemen in the midnight patrol. And they're sort of kind of detectives again, in the big noise and the bullfighters, uh, but this time they're attachment officers. And uh, so they, uh, they, they have to serve a, a subpoena to Mr. Kennedy to get him into court, uh, small claims court, I would imagine, so that they whoever owns the radio or who's owed the payments uh, can get the money. And so, the, the, so most of the film is about just getting that precious document into the hands of Edgar <laughs> Kennedy. And there were, there were many uh, sneaky uh, attachment officers who would come up with all sorts of clever ways of getting that paper into the hands of the person who needed to be served. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, uh, they probably had, the gag men had probably read something about that in the newspaper, or maybe one of them had been served like that. And they Uh, thought that would be a good idea for Laurel and Hardy to not be clever or adept at getting the paper into the hand of the, (laughs) the uh, transgressor. And, and, you know, that's, that's the great, I love the middle section of the film, which is, so many different ways of not getting the paper into Edgar Kennedy's hands. <laughs> R- right. Particularly when Stan has a sandwich, he decides it's time for a lunch break, even though his yes. pocket watch only has one hand on it. <laughs> you can't really tell what time <laughs> it is. And he says, well, he's he's supposed to be guarding that door. And instead he's very lackadaisical about it. He's just, just kind of, yes. kind of just, just standing outside, just hanging out and uh, he starts <laughs> to eat the sandwich. And of course, uh, when the time comes to, to put something into Edgar Kennedy's hands, he puts the sandwich into his hands instead of the, <laughs> the writ of attachment.
1: Yes. So. Yeah, there's some really good gags in that. And I'm yeah. just, just going back to the stop, and then the sheriff's office as well. The uh-huh. uh, we, we have these, these routines with the, um, the hat swapping, and is it Eddie Baker, I think, is the sheriff, isn't he?
0: Yes. Uh, the hats and doors uh, are always problematic for Laurel and Hardy, and they, <laughs> they, they pretty much rework that scene in uh, Bohunk's, uh, trying yes, to, trying yes. to get out of Charles Middleton's uh, office. Uh, yes. And it's amazing, you know, uh, <laughs> how many variations they can do on getting the, the hats and the doors mixed up. And that was different <laughs> in the film. Um, uh, I, I will quote from myself here. Uh, Please at, do. at the start of the film, Stan and Ollie were not asleep in the sheriff's office. They were eager to get their first job so much so that they hop up from the bench on which they're sitting whenever the sheriff calls for a man to come get his assignment. When all the other officers are gone, the boys finally get their orders. Stan gets his foot caught in a wastebasket in his excitement, then leaves his hat on the sheriff's desk before heading out. The boys soon return and explain that they haven't gotten their officers' badges yet. The sheriff pulls out what the script calls two bum star badges from a cigar box filled with miscellaneous stuff and then tells them to get going. So the, the opening scene was a little bit different. And yeah. uh, yes, we have Eddie Baker in the film, whose real name was Edwin Kin, King Baker. Uh, Edwin King Baker, he was born in Davis, West Virginia, on November 17th, 1897. He uh, was born into a theatrical family. And so when his folks were out on the road doing vaudeville or stock company work, uh, by the time Eddie was 12, he was pretty much living on his own in Los Angeles. He was in a boarding house on South Hope Street in Los Angeles. And uh, when he was a teenager, he joined the parents' troupe and toured the East in the plays Ye Old District School and Confederate Spy. And he got into the movies when he was 15. He was a prop boy for the Biograph Company. And began acting in 1917 in short comedies for the Victor Film Company, starring Eileen and Edward Sedgwick. Edward Sedgwick is a name that we know as a oh. comedy director for Buster Keaton and other people, and Air yes. Raid Wardens, in fact. Uh, Eddie Baker was also a comedy director. And uh, uh, he played villains for Gail Henry, who also figures into Bacon Grabbers. Um so anyway, Eddie was a very uh, a prominent guy. He's in a lot of the solo Stan Laurel comedies at Roach's. Um, in fact, he actually goes back further with Stan Laurel. He's in Huns and Hyphens, which is Stan Laurel and Larry Seaman at Vitagraph. But oh, he's, yeah. in, he's in lots of uh, Roach uh, St- Stan Laurel solo comedies. He's in Under Two Jags, Oranges and Lemons, Smithy. And then he worked a lot at Senate. And uh, he worked quite a bit into the, into the early 30s. He was the first uh, secretary of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, but 1936, he made a major career shift, and uh, uh, I guess because he played lawmen so many times, um, he became a, uh, a patrolman for the California Highway Patrol, uh, <laughs> which, which, he, which he did from 1936 uh, uh, through 1956, and then he got back into acting again and continued doing that right up until he died in February of 1968. So interesting. Oh, yeah. He had a, a 20-year hiatus pretty much from, from acting. Uh, But then got into it. I met his widow. His his widow's name was Christine, and she came with Mabel Langdon, Harry Langdon's widow, to uh, one of our Orange County meetings back in the 70s. And I remember I was getting things ready for the meeting, but I remember walking by them and they were both talking very animatedly about Arvid Gilstrom. (laughs) Arvid Gilstrom was a, a comedy film director. Uh, I think he died in the early thirties, but he had made a lot of films with Harry Langdon. And so right. they were both remembering Arvid Gilstrom. and I wished, I wish I could have just stopped and listened to them and, or had a yes. tape recorder going on their conversation. But, uh, anyway, yeah. they were both there at one of the meetings I put on back in Orange County back in almost 50 That's years awesome. ago. Wow. So, That's brilliant. so yeah, Eddie brilliant. Baker is prominent and, uh, you know, he's a, a he's, he's kind of similar to, uh. Uh, uh, Frank Brownley in uh, Do Detectives Think, who similarly is giving yes. them their their orders.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. And then of course we come out of the, uh, we finally get out of the right door, um, and we meet uh, Charlie Hall yes. in the uh, in the street. So what? And I love the um, the stills from Bacon Grabbers with Charlie Hall, and because obviously there's there's a deleted scene there, is yeah. the the cream of wheat in the radiator. Right.
0: Well, well, the the rice gag. Uh, that we know from the Huskow uh, was originally for this film. And I think and I think there's another film also that they were planning to use it and didn't, and I've forgotten which one that is. But anyway, yes, it's the same premise. Instead of rice, he says, put some cream of wheat into the leaking radiator uh, because Charlie Hall's truck has backed into it and Charlie Hall's truck has punctured uh, their car's radiator. Now, it's also interesting that he's at fault Uh, I think in the film, Laurel and Hardy uh, accidentally uh, bang into the, the back of Charlie Hall's car, which is more, I mean, that, that, that that's more characteristic. Yes. But anyway, the cream of wheat works for a while, but then it starts to come spraying out of the radiator and it, it sprays the windshield. So they, they can't see where they're going. And worse than that, it's also, it's also coming out of the exhaust pipe. So when they stop (laughs) at an intersection, Uh, It sprays a curious dog, uh, two refined young ladies (laughs) seated on a bench, uh, a very unfortunate manhole worker, and, of course, a cop. So that was a, a rather elaborate gag that they had planned. But I don't know how far along they got in filming. Obviously, they filmed the first part of it because there's a still of them with a package of cream of wheat and Charlie Hall going, see, that'll work. So uh, <laughs> that know, the, would have
1: been a great scene. I'd have loved to see that one. Yeah, oh, that sounds really yeah, good.
0: You know, probably just cut for time. Uh, you know, the, yeah. if, if this could have been a three-reeler, uh, you know that, that that would have been a nice uh, nice gag to have. Um, and and, and and it also maybe I should, I'll I'll just go ahead and, and, and mention it now because that gag, also formed the original ending of the film. The, ori- ah, yes. the original ending of the film is uh the the. Uh, steamroller comes by and it demolishes Kennedy's radio but that's all Uh, uh, it it doesn't demolish their car Uh, uh, and and there is a still showing Charlie Rogers as the driver of the steamroller now whether or not you originally saw him or not I don't know but he did get into costume and there is a still of them looking up up at him as he's standing in the cab of the steamroller so anyway it, it demolishes the radio and then just goes on and then Laurel and Hardy get into their car, and they try to start it up, and it explodes all by itself. <laughs> and then who should come along at that precise moment but Charlie Hall and Laurel and Hardy say, your cream of wheat wrecked our radiator and and wrecked our car. And Charlie says, it wrecked mine too, which is why, <laughs> which is why he's walking, you see. Yes. Now, 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 maybe they didn't want to incur the wrath or a, a lawsuit from the cream of wheat people <laughs> <laughs> not, not that there are going to be too many customers using cream of wheat to put in the <laughs> yes. radiator, and maybe exactly. that, maybe that's why they don't they don't have a brand product in the who's cow, They just say rice. I'll tell you
1: how to stop that leak. Put some rice in the radiator. Rice, yeah, rice could be anybody.
0: Rice, yeah. you know, so so no rice manufacturer yeah. is going to get after them for that. But cream of wheat is a very specific product, which which you can still buy. So so anyway, it was interesting that you know, they always liked to, and I admire this about Laurel and Hardy because so many comedians don't, is you know, whatever element they introduce into the film, they always tie it up, except for Bonnie Scotland, which has a whole bunch of loose ends. <laughs> but that film was a mess anyway. Uh, but, uh, but you know, having introduced the cream of wheat gag near the beginning of the film, they were going to use it as the finale. You know, at I mean, they always to tie things up uh i remember i remember george marshall uh saying that uh you know they they had come up up with the idea of the 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 cook being in uh uh the in the the army jail with them uh and uh you know vowing his vengeance and then stan said well well that's got to be our ending you know they had they hadn't thought of that for the ending but uh, since they had this new scene where they're in in jail with george marshall as the cook they said well that's our ending is you come back and now I've got my knife. So, you know, that's, that was the inspiration for that. So they always tried to have things all nicely wrapped up and resolved at the end of the picture, even in a short.
1: Now, do you know which, um, who uh, originated the story of the cream of wheat? Do you know where that came from? Uh, evidently Charlie Hall. Yes, that's right. It Charlie was. Hall yes, and it was. Fred Carnot Jr. That's it. That's, yeah. That's a great story. Really, really they good story. Were, I
0: don't know if they actually used cream of wheat, but they evidently were on a vaudeville tour together.
1: It was um, Davy Crump, um, when I when I spoke to him after his Carno book came out, uh-huh. uh, he flagged this one up. So I looked up the original piece. And it was from the London Weekly News, September 3rd, 1938, interview with Charlie Hall. Uh-huh. Um, and he says, uh, he says, in 1924, Fred Carnot Jr. took a comedy act on tour. And I was a member of the outfit. We went off to San Francisco mm. and our conveyance was one of those old types of Ford. The engine got very hot at one stage and this caused the radiator to leak. Steam came hissing up the radiator cap like smoke from an express train <laughs> until finally we had to pull up and call it a petrol station. We asked them to fill up with oil and water. And while they were doing it, we noticed the leaking radiator. It was just like a watering can. Mm. We could not get it fixed. Fred suddenly hit on a brainwave, he went into the grocery store and got three packets of breakfast food. This he put in the radiator. After a couple of minutes, the leak stopped, and off we went. (laughs) After going several miles, we saw what we thought was snow passing by the windows. Uh It was so thick, it covered our windscreen, and we had to stop and wipe it. Mm. We then found that the snow was Fred's breakfast food, and it was pouring out of the radiator. (laughs) We lifted the bonnet and saw a huge pudding. Uh The engine was covered, and so were we, for we had forgotten to turn off the engine. Mm. Stan later used this in one of his comedies. Yeah, Well, it's there really, you go. Well, really
0: you know, you 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 use whatever good ideas uh, from whatever source you uh, you can find.
1: Exactly. Very good. Yeah. Exactly. No. Great. Great to have that story. It is. It is. It's really really good. Um, you see, that, you that, say, that, the, that's
0: that's something which is not in my book because I didn't learn that until after the book was out. So new things are coming I along know. all <laughs> the time. <laughs> this is the trouble.
1: Well, it's go, it's going in my book.
0: Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, tell I you that. I need to write other books now. So. That's it. they <laughs> got a lot, got a lot more
1: stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so we got Charlie Hall. Love Charlie Hall, and then we're off to uh, off to Kennedy's house. Uh, we've talked about where the location of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those those gags with Edgar Kennedy, I think they're just absolutely superb. Well, How they, they, trying to get that into his hand is just yeah, wonderful.
0: Also, there's there's a little bit of a uh, a blooper in that in the film where uh, during the ladder sequence. Uh, you know, oh, they've yes. got, they've got, uh, at one point they're trying to get into the upper story of the house through a window and Stan is uh, atop a ladder and Ollie is holding the ladder. Well, there's a couple of shots there where if you look at the shadow <laughs> of the ladder on the ground, you see that there's nobody there at all. It's just Ollie holding <laughs> an, an empty ladder, just holding the ladder, yes. uh, because, uh, at the top of the shot, you don't see that Stan's not there, but the shadow, unfortunately, yeah. is their giveaway. <laughs> and you can also tell that it doubles when they when they fall when uh, there's the backward fall out of the window. The, the ladder falls back, and uh, they Molly and Stan both fall. Um, th- there are two buddies in this film. Um, uh, uh, there's a buddy the dog, uh, and uh, we oops we, we 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 see Buddy the dog in let's see here in uh, from soup to nuts and we also see him uh later on in uh, uh perfect day where you actually Oh, was that hear... buddy
1: that goes under the table and from soup yeah. to
0: nuts yeah and, and ah. you, you also you also uh you, you hear edgar kennedy uh in perfect day he's he's petting the dog saying come on buddy it's okay buddy oh of course he is. Uh, who yes, was probably he is. a little bit excited by all of the explosions and things uh and sandwiches so uh, <laughs> Uh, yes, there was uh, uh, something else with Buddy in the film, too, in the original script. Uh, let's see here. Uh, As written, Buddy goes to Kennedy's front door and finds the writ, which Ollie has dropped. Kennedy then opens the door, takes the writ from the dog, and is about to light it with a match. But Stan and Ollie arrive on the scene just in time and blow it out. Kennedy has the paper in his hands, thanks to the dog, not to the boys, and that <laughs> is that. So that that would have been funny, too, for the dog, to actually serve (laughs) the paper to Kennedy. (laughs) You know, sometimes you you, you wonder sometimes why these great things in the script didn't wind up in the picture. And the the movie's wonderful, but, you know, these these variations on what's in the movie are often very funny. Well, the other buddy, I was really, really happy to identify this young man. In fact, this was one of my key goals when I was rewriting Magic Behind the Movies was to identify this kid because he's... He's prominent in *Bacon Grabbers* and in *Angora Love*, where he's oh, okay. he's he's the the boy who just who realizes that the goat is not in front of the pet store, and he alerts the ah, right. pet yes. shop owner, uh, whose name I forget right now. But he's the same actor who plays Gillette, uh, Buster Keaton's assistant in *Sherlock Jr.*, and uh. he's he's also the theater manager in *Sherlock Jr.* So anyway, that's that's for Angora Love. That's your next one.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) But the child actor, his name was Jack Vernon Moore or Buddy Moore, and uh, he was born March 7th, 1920. So he's not quite nine years old at the time that they made this. This is in February of 29. So he had about a month to go before he would turn nine years old. He lived in Azusa, California. I was just there last weekend uh, with his parents and three sisters and two brothers and of course, he's also in an Angora Love. He's in the crowd of neighbors in Perfect Day, and in an our gang short called Shivering Shakespeare, where the kids put on a play. He's one of the kids, and it appears that he had a deleted scene in Helpmates, because I found him wow. in the payrolls uh, ascribed to that production. But there, there was nothing in the script that that indicated that uh, there was a young boy in it. But for some reason, he was paid for being in Helpmates. Now, right, okay. sometimes they charge off expenses for one production to another one so that might be what they did oh, okay. Um, okay that's that's why supposedly blockheads cost more to make than uh, uh, devil's brother and sons of the desert combined which is nonsense because the whole reason <laughs> blockheads was made was because it was going to be quick and cheap <laughs> right so right. anyway buddy Moore went to the uh, the comic uh, uh, school or the Cummock school in los angeles which uh, emphasized the performing arts and we don't know if he made any other movies he probably did that we don't know about uh yeah. he, he died at 65 in los angeles on march 29th 1985 so i don't know a lot about his life i'd like to know more because uh, mm. he's, you know important in a couple yeah. of films but at least i was able to identify him um you know it's yes. always it's always yeah. frustrating when you have people who are prominent in the film and you just don't have a name for them
1: yes yeah Uh, do you have the um the script for helpmates there's no mention of him in 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 the script for helpmates yeah i have Helpmates. yeah yes i do yeah there's no no mention of uh of a young boy in
0: nope nope i i have it's it's about it's about uh, 20 feet away from me right now (laughs) and helpmates is a script that is very very close to the movie much more so than almost any other script i've ever seen um, oh, wow. there's, there's one, there's one extra little dialogue exchange, which I think they filmed and cut because there's a lap dissolve where it would have been. And, uh, the ending was a little bit different where Stan was supposed to join Ollie sitting in the chair. Uh, oh, yes. and, and also uh, somehow the phone was still working and Ollie gets a call thing <laughs> that his fire insurance has just run out, which is a little contrived. <laughs> I'm I'm glad they, they did it as they filmed it. But yes, uh, other than perfect that, perfect. Uh, it, it is a twin to the film, which was surprising because, you know, as Hal Roach said time and time again, 50 uh, percent of what's in the script will not play. And that's usually yes. what you uh, find when you look at the scripts. You find that about half of it is familiar to you from watching the movie. And the other half yeah. of it is, as with Bacon Grabbers, really funny stuff, which isn't in the film. And sometimes yeah. it's, what were they thinking? <laughs> Sometimes go what Absolutely. you know what what why would they ever think that would work? So happily, we don't have any of those instances in the bacon grabber script. Absolutely. Which Absolutely. I hope I hope I dictated entirely because I you know I I have a lot of things that I dictated on tape forty years ago, uh, which I don't have in text, and there may be some other scripts, some other complete scripts on those tapes that I dictated uh, years uh, ago. And, uh, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for more, uh, shorts scripts for, uh, perhaps a Laurel and Hardy movie scripts, volume three. So yeah. you know, there's, there's still yeah. plenty of them out there that I, uh, I don't have as yet. So, you know,
1: you'll have to, you'll have to publish a list of the ones you're missing. You've uh, yes, open, uh, I
0: will. I will. I did just recently through the courtesy of Richard Bann, I just got the one for, uh, sailors beware. Oh, fantastic! So, so there's fantastic. one. More. Oh, and I and I also just recently won at auction a 1915 script for Hurley Stan and Wren in the Nutty Burglars.
1: Oh, Isn't wow. that something? Okay. How many copies yeah. of that
0: do you think survive? I think one. <laughs> and I yes. got I got it for two hundred dollars, which I thought was quite a bargain. Actually, yeah, that sounds. A bargain. Uh, yeah. So it, does. so it had that, and it had a contract for the Gus Sun-Vaudeville circuit, which was real small-time Vaudeville, and it's, and it's signed by uh, uh, Edgar Hurley. So, uh, uh, yeah, I was really, really happy to get that because we know what acts Stan did in Vaudeville. There was Raffles the Dentist and there was No Mother to Guide Her and uh, the Nutty Burglars, which which sort of transformed into the Keystone Trio Basically the same uh, sketch, but now with Stan as Charlie Chaplin. Uh, uh, but you know, I, I don't recall ever seeing the actual script for these things before. So nice, nice to know what he did three times a day for <laughs> yeah. for a couple or three yeah, so years. So yeah, what a find. so That's that fantastic. will that will get out in to the public in something somewhere for me. So. <laughs>
1: Much space, love it. Well, fantastic. anytime, I,
0: anytime I, I'm able to, to get these wonderful artifacts, the the whole point of getting them is to get them out to to yeah, the Laurel and hardy admirers. So it's part of the
1: historical record. Absolutely, no, that's a credit to you, Randy. That's great. Um, so, talking of dogs, there's a massive dog also oh, in Bacon Grabbers. Yeah, do we know who that is? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know the name of the of the, oh, of the big no. dog. Uh,
0: but uh, but 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 seems to be uh, genuinely frightened by the the phony dog. It's
1: uh, yes, the phony dog.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, let me see if I can find. I've got something about the 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 phony, which is like the the weirdest prop. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because that it, turns up in other films, doesn't it? Yeah, it's in an R gang. Uh, 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 let's see if I can find find it here in my. Uh, there it is. Yeah. Uh, okay probably the strangest prop in any Laurel and Hardy film. And uh, uh, it's in a 1926 short called Along Came Auntie, and Dave is in that, and and Vivian Oakland uses it to frighten away a process server uh, played by Tyler Brooke. So we need to go back and look at that and see if there might be uh, any similar gags used between Along Came Auntie and Bacon Grabbers. And you can also see it, not very prominently, but there's an Argan comedy called Bargain Day. And uh, the poor little rich girl is uh, blonde Shirley Jean Rickert. And she has all sorts of toys in her playroom. And that, that phony dog is in there as well. So. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it was Amazing. used as a, like a ventriloquist puppet because it's got a, a string on it to open the mouth. So you know, it almost looks like, <laughs> yes, a, like, right. a, like a ventriloquist dummy for a, if you did a, an act with a, a, a prop bulldog. But uh, that's right. I, I like the way that the big dog seems genuinely scared of it.
1: <laughs> like, it does, yeah. And
0: runs. And we have,
1: and we have the great gag which is dragging Babe down the path. Well. Yeah,
0: or dra- or Babe's double. <laughs> oh, babe's double. probably yeah. Cy Slocum at this
1: point. Uh,
0: yes. And and then and then the well timed uh, arrival of the car right after right after that. Yeah, that's the, right. The car that almost that's hits right. him. So yeah, mm-hmm. you always wonder about uh, things like that. The, the, there weren't too many of those. You, you know, gags where you, you really worry about the safety of the actors in, in Roach comedies, but in Max Senate comedies, yeah. there are several where cars and trains are, uh, you know, look to be on a collision course and boy, they, they avoid oh, it yeah. at the very last moment. And, uh, yes. it's, it's, it's thrilling, but terrifying, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Cy he Slocum was, uh, I, I think the, the double at this point for Babe was Cy Slocum, whose real name was Lyle Edward Asher. Now, why he would change his name to Cy Slocum, I have no idea. But he was from Illinois, born in 1902 on January 7th, and uh, he was in film work until the late 1940s, and then he became a carpenter and a professional Bronco writer. <laughs> hey, so he never he never quite gave up the the dangerous life. But he went from stuntman to bronco rider, So he evidently was someone who had a passion for uh, physical injury.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love it. I'm just trying to think which... Um, here we go. Here we go. Uh, Along Came Auntie. I was looking at Along Came and not that long ago huh? when I was doing my um, episode on That's My Wife. Because mm. the storyline of That's My Wife is very similar to Along Came Auntie. Mm. And that's when I spotted this dog. I was like, oh, that's the same dog. So, mm. Um, mm. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, no. that well, it's an interesting one. Um, hmm. Vivian Oakland is to inherit a fortune from her aunt, providing yeah. she proves that she's still happily married to no her no husband. Played, played by Babe Hardy. Hmm. The snag is that Oakland has divorced Hardy and married another man, Glenn Tryon. As the divorce hating aunt typically arrives to stay, Oakland realizes that her new lodger is her ex husband. The three must put on a show to fool the aunt for Oakland to secure the money. It's one of these you've yeah. going to be married yeah. to get the you know, to get yeah. the money and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, so it turns into a bit of a farce and uh, uh, Glenn Tryon dresses up as a woman as Stan <laughs> Lenty, that's my wife. So, yeah, it's quite, it's quite good. As, it's quite, as he quite does good again good in short.
0: 45 Minutes from Hollywood. So, yeah. Yes,
1: that's right, yeah. That's Seems right. like
0: any any clean-shaven comedian at the Roach Studios was going to be drafted into uh, dressing up <laughs> as a woman at some point. <laughs> well, Stan Laurel did... Uh, we but... don't realize this, but Stan Laurel did that from what... Uh, september of 1918 through january of 1922 i think i mean he and he and would would do it three times a day because he did this vaudeville sketch called no mother to guide her in which he played this uh, old biddy as they used to call them so uh, uh performing in drag was uh, nothing unusual for him because he did it for three years or four years <laughs>
1: Yeah, I suspect it was probably quite a big musical trait, isn't it? To, oh, sure. To yeah. The, as, pa- the pantomime all...
0: dames. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And absolutely. and the, the 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 taller and more stout you were, the funnier the dame you were.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> in right.
0: fact, in going through uh, the history of Babes in Toyland, uh, it wasn't Babes in Toyland, but there was a play called Babes in the Wood. And the storyline of that was uh, appropriated for Babes in Toyland. But there was a famous pantomime dame who was about six foot three and 280 pounds who played a female character. And uh, as I and and in Christmas pantomimes, of course, in England, usually the the female characters are played by men. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's a that's a that's a, a, a uh, longstanding theatrical tradition.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, and Gene Harlow, of course. Yes. It pops up right yes. at the end.
0: Uh, this, I believe, is her last Hal Roach film. Um, yeah. She's in three with Laurel and Hardy, and uh, she's in at least one with Charlie Chase. Uh, I think it's called What Women Did for Me. Um, and uh, 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 Roach had a story about that. It re- also, originally in the script, she was supposed to be Kennedy's daughter. Oh, um, ah, right, okay. I think they specify... That it's it's his wife I'm not sure but anyway we always assume that that, that that's his wife um mm. uh you know she she calls I think him she
1: does she refer to darling she something? calls
0: him darling which you, you, yes. you, you probably a, a, a daughter wouldn't uh, do for daddy <laughs> daddy she would have said. Well, we, won't,
1: we won't go into
0: that yeah let's let's hope not yeah the uh yeah the press sheet uh well, evidently it was still in the press sheet the press sheet indicated that her her role was originally envisioned as Kennedy's quote, fair young daughter, unquote. Uh, The press Uh sheet also describes Laurel and Hardy as, quote, the latest and most willingly inefficient additions to the sheriff's staff (laughs) of property attachers. And so the the story about her is that just after she finished this film, she went into Mr. Roach's office, along with her mother, of course, who ran her life, and her stepfather. (laughs) And she has to be released from her contract. And I remember seeing her contract at USC, and it was signed as Harlene McGrew, which evidently yes. was her, uh, uh, her, her married name. Har, uh, her husband's name was Chuck McGrew II. And he was just sort of a wealthy playboy. <laughs> and anyway, Roach said, she said her husband disliked the motion picture business. She said, it's breaking up my marriage. What can I do? So I told her I'd tear up her contract, which I did. And, actually, her marriage to uh, Chuck McGrew II was already on the rocks, and it didn't really matter whether he liked the movie business or not because Jean's mm-hmm. mother wanted to get her into a better contract with a bigger studio than the Hal Roach Studios. And now that she had a few credits uh, to show to casting right. directors, it was going to be a little bit easier. And before long, she was starring in the uh, multimillion-dollar aviation epic Hell's Angels, which was financed and directed by Howard Hughes. And uh, that's right. what really put her on the map. So there right. you
1: are. That's interesting because her her actual um, the story she gave to was it Screenland magazine. I forget now. I, I spoke about it on the last episode. Mm. She she said the reason for it was that her grandparents, who were oh, yeah. were closest to her uh, than her parents, uh-huh. uh, went to Kansas City to the cinema and just happened to go into the cinema and. Um, uh, <laughs> He, what was he called? The last the last. Um, they they, they saw I mean, Double I'm, Whoopie. Double Whoop, thank you. Gran- Gran- yeah, Grandpa Double saw Double Whoopie and was not happy. <laughs> he was not happy at all. No, not happy at all. So he, he insisted, he insisted that she come out of movie business immediately. So that was the well, story. Well, <laughs> story she, was given. she
0: didn't exactly do that. She came out of the studio, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yes, that, she has a sm- and also it's interesting, it's a very windy day when she's shooting her uh, scenes. Um, yes, just as you can tell, it's a very windy day uh, when in uh, October of twenty-seven, when Laurel and Hardy are walking down the uh, the backlot street uh, just before the banana peel business in Battle of the Century. Uh there, yes, there's a newsstand, what, yes, and you is. see the you see the magazines fluttering all over with, with the wind. Well, that's if, right. If, well, that's October. Well, this is February of twenty-nine when they're shooting uh, Bacon Grabbers, and it's still a very gusty day in cheviot hills when they did that yes. final scene with uh, uh gene harlow yes so yeah that's it
1: and then it was a, it's a nice wrap-up as well i know you're saying that originally it was yeah. you know, scripted to be different but i i think it's good it works really well at the end doesn't well, it? well
0: you know stan said they always he always wanted an unhappy ending for laurel and hardy because he said it gave them more integrity and i <laughs> I, I like i i mean it's ridiculous that a guy ran, running a steamroller would run over a car. So logically it makes no sense, uh, nor would he run yeah. over a radio, really. But, <laughs> but I like the turnabout is fair play, you know, where Laurel and Hardy yeah. finally get the radio. We, we, at last we've got it and we can return it to whoever has rented it to Mr. Kennedy. But here comes the steamroller. And now it's just nothing but a, a pile of wooden splinters and tubes and Kennedy is just, you know, there's your radio. Or, oh, oh, then, yes, Gene Harlow comes in. She says, I just paid for it. So, yes, so that's 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 Turnabout is fair play number one, is Kennedy's laughing because the radio's been destroyed, but now he realizes that he's just paid for this useless <laughs> pile of rubble. Okay. Yes. Now, and then now Laurel and Hardy are laughing, but then Turnabout, yet again, is the, the steamroller goes all, all over their car. So they that's both it. wind up that's with useless machinery <laughs> at the end of the film
1: Was ever thus.
0: so so yeah so I, I i i like that and i'm really hoping that uh serge bromberg and eric lang and the people at lobster films will be able to find uh material that is as pristine for bacon grabbers as what they found for the 1927 films because i looked at both of the dvds and if I had a working Super 8 projector right now, I would be looking at the print that I got of it. I think I have two prints of it, actually, from Blackhawk, um, because I know I bought it when it was only available as a silent. And then in the mid to late 70s, they found the soundtrack discs and and issued it again, this time with the music. And so I think I've got two prints of it. Um, and I seem to recall it looking a lot better than it does on any of the DVDs. Uh, you know, if you look at the... Uh, There's a featurette that that Serge Bromberg did for uh, the new year one Blu-ray about the restoration of the films. And he shows putting pants on Philip from a print that was made in the late 50s for Robert Youngson and then a print that Blackhawk made only five years later from the same source. And you get to see how much more deterioration has happened just naturally, just the film just decaying. And it's quite sobering. So uh, it is, yeah, <laughs> it's frightening. So yeah. I, I hope that somewhere in an archive, somewhere in the world, there is uh, pristine material on bacon grabbers. I remember for years well, and years, there didn't seem to be any stills that survived for it. And uh, I certainly hope that you yeah. have a, a lot of them f- for your book. Uh, uh, we have all of them. We have all of them. Well, I, we'll I, was, I was at we'll USC do. in 1980 and going through this just this big file box of miscellaneous Howl Roach stuff. And they had, I think it was only 10 stills, but they had three prints of each one of them. And <laughs> including the, the one with the beards and the one with Charlie Hall's cream of wheat. Yes. And I went, aha, yes. deleted scenes. And these stills are not in the big 1975 McCabe, Kiltmore band book. There's just one little frame blow up. That's all they had. Cause they couldn't find the stills on that film. So at least we had those. Um, and I, I, I didn't get a print made. I wish I had of the still of Charlie Hall, uh, uh with the standing in the uh, cab of the steamroller,
1: uh, oh, Charlie Rogers. Yes. Charlie yeah, Rogers. Yeah, yeah. yes. Oh, I
0: only have a, 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 photocopy of that. I don't have an actual print, but, uh, well, we can improve
1: on that for oh, you. Good. Don't you worry. We'll, good, get, good. we'll, well, we'll get it to you. Oh, great. Well, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for that. Um, <laughs> that's no problem. No, there's a, and there's a really, um, there's a really lovely still in there, which I, which, which, which I, which I love, um, where and I think it's I think it's a candid shot mm-hmm. and you've got your Edgar Kennedy standing in the doorway uh-huh. and Stan and Babe are sort of leaning against the doorframe uh-huh. and they look like they're having a bit of a laugh between takes. Mm. It's a lovely little shot.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good good for Stacks that he filmed the, uh, shot those as well. <laughs> well, you're 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 wetting my appetite for the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about the score? the music score for it
1: yes i would i would love to guess what what i also like to do i don't know if you've listened to any that we've done in the past when you've mentioned when you mentioned the actual titles of the scores mm-hmm. i'll go and lift that bit of the score and play it after you've spoken so in the episodes it's, oh, okay. it's really nice it's a well, lovely way of doing it well
0: so. this this morning i went through the list of music cues that i know and as i say it, it appears that a significant amount of it was either ad-libbed or composed by the organist. And uh, yeah. the organ, the man playing the organ was named Norbert Ludwig, as, as in Ludwig <laughs> drums that Ringo Starr plays. Uh, and he right. was playing the, uh, the pipe organ uh, at the uh, Camden Trinity Baptist Church, which had been bought by the Victor Talking Machine Company. And uh, this was on Tuesday, August 6th, 1929, from 7 p.m. to 11.15 p.m. at night. Uh, this was a long day for uh, old uh, Norbert because he had earlier done uh, an Our Gang film uh, in the morning. Let's see. Um, uh, yeah, he'd done Saturday's Lesson uh, from 9 to 12.15. He did Reel 1 and from 1.15 to 4.30, he did Reel 2 of Our Gang's Saturday's Lesson. And then Bacon Grabbers was all recorded from 7 to 11.15. So that was a long right. day for poor Norbert. And <laughs> uh, let's see. He was from uh we're born in lusk russia uh on december 28th 1902 uh he grew up in austria he studied at the vienna conservatory before uh, coming to the united states he studied at juilliard so he was a very well-trained musician he became a naturalized united states citizen in june 1922 worked as an organist in new york at the rivoli roxy and paramount theaters and uh let's see he wrote several tunes there was one called blue scarecrow which got into the television era uh, as the theme of a show called The World of Mr. Sweeney. And uh, when he did the scores for Bacon Grabbers and also for Angora Love, he played the SD, Estey, that's the uh, manufacturer, who made the pipe organ. And this, again, was at the Trinity Baptist Church in Camden, New, New Jersey, which was now a Victor studio. And this is also the same uh, location and the same instrument on which uh, the great jazz performer Fats Waller, made his uh, pipe organ solo recordings in 1926 through 1929. Those of us who love old jazz records are well familiar with those, and it's the same, same organ that is being played for, for those. Um, it's interesting. He probably had some difficulty keeping his performance synchronized with the film because the pipes were in a separate room from the organ console, and so there was <laughs> an inherent delay between the time that he pressed a key and the time that the pipe responded with sound. So that wow. could have been a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit difficult when you're trying to uh, precisely yeah. uh, coordinate your, your your music with the with the action. There was another man wow. by the name of William H. Wrights, R E I T Z providing the percussion, and somebody else named J. Wolf. I don't know the full name, but just J. Period Wolf, and he had the sound effects. He was doing the barking of Kennedy's dog. I don't know if he was actually barking or if he had some other uh, device (laughs) making the sound effect. And he also had the rubber razor, the raspberry uh, toy that did the snoring for the uh, the uh, Laurel and Hardy when they're sleeping at the beginning of the film. And uh, because talkies kind of eliminated the need for theater organists, uh, Norbert Ludwig became an accordionist in hotels. And he also taught music. And uh, lived until uh, October 29th of 1960, uh, leaving his wife Ethel and his daughter Ina. So there we go. Uh, And of course, Mm -hmm. as they often did when they did these scores, they use a lot of popular tunes. So let me go through it and just briefly tell you what is where. Uh, The opening titles are a tune called Your Way Is My Way Any Way You Go. the Sheriff's Office, it's Canadian Capers. when they're trying to figure out when they're trying to get out of the office it's where do we go from here which is an old world war (laughs) one song okay the next one is uh, oh at the, when they're at the front door? It's called. Do I know what I'm doing? Oh. get into their car it's a song called henry's made a lady out of lizzie uh there were several records of that song and it refers to the fact that the the tin lizzie which is what they called the model t i don't really know why but that was the nickname for the model t was the tin lizzie and in late 1927 henry ford stopped production on them because uh they were too reliable they were too dependable nobody ever bought a new one they never wore out and he'd been making them since 1909 and everybody who who needed a model t had one and so he, nice. he said, well, I have to, to think about planned obsolescence. And that is if the car doesn't wear out, then we'll just make it not stylish anymore. So he yeah. created the Model A. And the Model A was a much sleeker and more stylish car and came in a variety of colors, unlike the Model T, where they always said you can get a Model T in any color you want as long as it's black. So <laughs> now you there were several different models of Model A's, and they were very sporty, and it meant that the whole... Detroit Ford plant had to be retooled so that that area of Detroit actually went through a depression before the Great Depression kicked in because uh, the Ford company was uh, out of commission for a while uh, retooling itself to make this new car. So Henry's made a lady out of Lizzie refers to the beautiful sleek new Model A supplanting the old bulky Model T. and then once again where do we go from here which when they're saying which way to the house uh when you first see edgar kennedy mowing his lawn it's a song called here's that party now in person <laughs> <laughs> when there's when there's more, uh, when they're approaching uh, Kennedy while he's mowing his lawn, there's a tune called Blue Grass. <laughs> When you first see Buddy Moore with the big dog, it's a tune called The Whistler and His Dog. Uh, when the the first time that Ollie is saying the paper, the paper, it's a tune called I Owe You. <laughs> Uh, When they're at the window, uh, uh, the upstairs window, it's my window of dreams. when when kennedy uh, uh, has the mop and he's trying to push stan off of the top of the ladder it's it all depends on you <laughs> They go back to my window of dreams then when Kennedy has the shotgun and he's aiming at Stan back and forth it's shoe fly don't bother me <laughs> Right at the time that the fire hydrant is hit and it, and it uh, spurts in front of uh, Harry Bernard, it's Pomp and Circumstance, which we always hear at high school graduation ceremonies here in the States. Um, right. Then when uh, when uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy have, have brought the uh, radio out into the road and Kennedy is angry and he kicks Ollie in the rear end, it's a tune called Revenge. Revenge. <laughs> And uh, then there's a little bit more of I owe you when Gene Harlow comes up and says, Darling, I paid for the radio. And the final yeah. uh, ending track once again is Henry's Made a Lady Out of Lizzie. Now right. interspersed between that is, is the, that little tune that goes dump dump dum, dum, uh um brum bum bum brum bum bum brum bum 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 You hear that all through the film. And I think that's just right. a, a little bit interstitial theme that was created by uh norbert ludwig because i can't there's no right. there's no mention of it in the official cue sheet so so that's what i can tell you about uh, that score um uh it was uh, re- re- of course it was issued on discs and uh the real one is matrix number mve five five seven five seven and real two is mve five five seven five eight and uh, I hope there are still original discs for that somewhere. Uh, Mike Jones uh, told me that he's got one of his members who's got a pristine uh, set of discs for uh, uh, Angora Love. And, of oh, course, wow. of course, uh, uh, Serge Bromberg and Eric Lang are planning to do 1928 and 1929. So, yeah. God, God willing, yeah. we'll all still be here in a couple of years. And I uh, hope we can get a proper recording on that because uh, what we have is rather scratchy. So it would be nice to have... A, a lovely, clean-sounding yeah. transfer of that.
1: Absolutely. Is there a is there a DVD um, available that has the original? Yes. Um, yeah. Track, track. Track. Yeah.
0: The the yeah. the image one that uh, Michael Agee did uh, the lost films of Laurel and Hardy series has that, and the Blackhawk right. Prince in the late seventies had the original score. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Okay. But okay. Uh, so I, don't, I don't think it's on the Universal.
0: No, I think they've got either Bohunks or something else on it, yeah. Yeah, I think so. It is available. It's out there. That's good. That's good. Brilliant. Yeah, well, and uh, the final notes I can tell you is that uh, the film cost uh, (laughs) $39,387.84 to produce. Where I found that, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and and recording the score all by itself cost $4,043.06. Wow. I don't why, why there's wow. six cents there, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the other thing is that uh, uh, it was filmed at the last two weeks of February. It was scored on Tuesday, August 6th of 1929, and it was released on October 19th. Uh, which I think is a month after the last MGM silent feature was released, which is a Greta Garbo movie. Um, so so there, were, there were quite a few Roach silent shorts that were released after the last MGM silent feature. And uh, as I say, I think Angora Love, which came out in December of 1929, uh, uh, I think that's the last silent released by any major studio in America. Uh, there were some, there were some very low-budget Western uh, studios that, that made Westerns for for rural theaters that had not weren't uh, couldn't afford to uh, convert to the new sound equipment, so they were still running silent films. Um, there's actually a movie about that called "It Happened in Hollywood," and uh, it's about a, a, an old washed-up uh, movie cowboy who was great in silence, but couldn't make the transition to talkies. Well, there's this rural community, and there's this boy, a sick boy in a hospital in this little rural community, and his community has only only been able to show silent movies. So he's still a big star uh, where these kids are. And uh, the, the kid sends him a letter. He's saying, gee, I'd sure love to meet you in person. And the uh, the washed-up movie cowboy, he, he can't get any of the big stars to come with him, but he gets all of their doubles and it, it looks it looks as though they're the actual doubles because they do resemble these people there's wC fields and may West and all these other people dressed as those stars and they all come to visit the boy in the hospital but it's because the his his old silence are still playing uh in this rural community so yeah you can imagine it probably did it didn't just all happen overnight you know suddenly installing amplifiers and speakers and all these things which you hadn't needed before you know Uh, and and of course it caused a great upheaval with all the musicians who formerly had been working in silent pictures so uh as 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 chauncey haynes who was a theater organist said we had suicides galore and so it's uh, a sad uh uh, unfortunate uh, circumstance uh, thanks to uh, new technology yeah
1: absolutely yeah i know we i know in the past we've spoken about um how certainly bacon grabbers and angora love may have been received by audiences given Mm -hmm. the fact that they were pretty much museum pieces by the time they were released yeah um and i i i haven't been able to find hardly any reviews Mm. of bacon grabbers Mm. um or angora love for that matter Mm. so far Mm. um i found one review for bacon grabbers but that is dated 1930 that's the only one i could really? find Ah, um, and intre- interestingly it's from the exhibitors herald world right? from uh, Bedf- bedford theater in bedford pa and it says bacon grabbers this is one of laurel and hardy's synchronized comedies yeah. and while good it has organ accompaniment which is not so good <laughs> after running them in talking pictures <laughs> mm. yeah by the time that bacon grabbers came out five of their talkies had already been released Yes.
0: Because yeah. MGM, MGM was rush releasing those into the theaters because they didn't know if sound was going to last. You know, uh, they, they thought maybe this is just a flash in the pan like 3D was, you know, 3D didn't last. <laughs> so uh, uh, who, who knew if people were going to say, okay, this was a nice novelty, but now let's get back to silent pictures. Um, and it's too bad they couldn't have coexisted because really silent films are a whole different art form from talking pictures uh it's too bad that they couldn't coexist uh it's also too bad that radio drama couldn't have coexisted with television in in america the way that it has in england i know they still have radio drama in england and uh that 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 too is a unique art form it's not just an inferior form of television it has its own properties its own artistic properties yeah so
1: yeah yeah without a doubt yeah that's right Brilliant! All well, right, thank you for that, Randy. That's uh, another excellent look, okay. Another deep dive into well, one of the one of the boys' films. Only one silent picture to go, yeah. and uh, and then we hit the talkies. that's exciting stuff. Um, but. Uh, Oh, that's brilliant, Randy. If you can um, hang around, we're going to do a little Q and A for the patrons of the podcast very shortly. If that's okay with yourself, all right. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much for joining us again today. It's been brilliant to learn about uh, the behind the scenes uh, of Bacon Grabbers and all that goes with, all that goes with it. So, thank you so much, and hopefully, we'll we'll have you on again soon. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> And so the curtain comes down on another episode. I do hope you've enjoyed our chat about bacon grabbers today. I know I certainly did. And don't forget, if you'd still like to hear more with me and Randy, then there's a further 30 minutes or so just waiting for you on Patreon.com, as well as a host of other exclusive episodes, all with very special guests such as Steve Massa, Glenn Mitchell, Richard Ban, and many more. Uh, and one more thing, Russell and I will be attending the Talking Pictures TV Festival in Christchurch on the 14th and 15th of October, 2023. That's Christchurch in the UK, I should, uh, I should add. Um, so if you're thinking of attending the event over the weekend, please do come and say hello. Uh, we'd love to see you there. So all that remains to say is thank you again to our brilliant guest, the ever-fascinating Randy Skretvet. Thank you to the Bohunks Orchestra and Basta Music, And as always, a huge thank you to you for spending this time with me once again. And so until next time, it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And a very goodbye from me. Goodbye.